podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Man there trying to stop Drogba getting himself into further trouble. It's not a bad ball for Pelé on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was! Carlos Alberto! Maradona just walked away from Hoddle then. Welcome to the Scoreless Thriller Podcast. On the 4th of December in 2011, in Crawley, England, a football team played their first recognised match, thrown out with a convincing 6-1 home win. Their opposition that day was bizarrely Ratia, a region of the Roman Empire, which now takes in parts of Italy, Switzerland, Germany, Austria and Liechtenstein. This unusual team is one which represents far more than what happens on the pitch. Meet the Chagos Islands national football team. In the years since, Chagos has played a wide range of opposition, from the Isle of Man, Somaliland, Sealand, the Pacific Island of Tuvalu, to even Yorkshire. You might be wondering, A. Where is Chagos? B. Why have I never heard of it? And C. Why was their home match being played in Crawley? So the Chagos national team was playing a home game roughly 9,000 kilometres from their location on a map. But unlike the Spanish Super Cup being played in Saudi Arabia, this distance was far from a choice in search of monetary gain. Rather, the simple act of playing a football match and representing Chagos is an act of defiance that represents far more than what goes on between the white lines on the football pitch. Results have been mixed for the Chagos national team, with struggles against stronger teams at this level. But the results on the pitch are not alone the key aspect of the story. As Sabrina Jean, one of our guests for this podcast, put it, our people can't live in the island they represent on the field because the Chagosian people have been exiled from their homeland for more than 40 years. We play to let people all over the world know about our motherland. To tell the story of Chagos football is to tell a tale of cruelty and injustice that is difficult to comprehend. If you were to read it in a history book, you would shudder and then comfort yourself with how much society has progressed since then. But to know it has happened in our lifetime and the injustice continues, it's difficult to not feel a sense of anger and disbelief yourself. On this podcast, we're going to speak to two people who are integral to the story of the Chagos Islands national football team. We're going to speak to first to Sabrina Jean, the president of the Chagos Islands refugee group, and later to Jimmy Farrar, who is the manager of the team. But first, we need to dive deep into the history and the story of the team and how the people ended up representing their national team in Crawley. to begin well i think the easiest point to start when telling the chagos story is to point about where it is on the map so chagos archipelago or chagos island islands is a group of seven atolls comprising more than 60 islands 
in the Indian Ocean, about 500 kilometers, 310 miles south of the Maldives. The Chagos was home to the Chagossians, a Borbonese Creole speaking people, until the United Kingdom expelled them from an archipelago between 1967 and 1973 to allow the United States to build a military base on Diego Garcia. Since 1971, only the atoll of Diego Garcia, based at the biggest island, has been inhabited and a major US military base has existed there. The plan to remove the Chagossian people and, um, and you know, give this land to the United States for this military base, it's, it's, it's a sordid story. I mean, it's difficult to quite put into, put into words. I mean, basically, there's a memo which says, and I'm going to quote from this, and it says, the objective of the exercise is to get some rocks which will remain ours. There will be no indigenous population except seagulls who have yet not yet got a committee. Unfortunately, along with the birds go some few Tarzans or men Fridays whose origins are obscure and who are being hopefully wished on to Mauritius, etc. The plan to remove the people from the Chagos Islands and to give the to, to give the land to the US uh, to use the military base came because um, it was during the period of decolonization and the land was going and Chagos had been governed from uh, Mauritius, but when Mauritius gave it independence in a move which is broke all sorts of international laws, the British government planned to hang on to the Chagossian Islands and as, as such, give this give this land to to the to the US to build a military base. So, um, so in, in, in reports on this, they in the years coming up to it, they deliberately undercounted it in order to play down the scale of the proposed mass deportation. Uh, three years before the top depopulation plan was created, Sir Robert Scott, Governor of Mauritius, estimated the, to the permanent population of Diego Garcia at 1,700. However, in a British Indian Overseas Territory report, which what the Chagas Islands is referred to on uh, all official um, British uh, websites and uh, all other areas, uh, made the report in 1968, the estimate that it was as low as 354 Chagossians, which were lived, which were third generation belongers on the island. So the numbers of how many people were actually forcibly removed is, is quite disputed. We do know is is in, in March six, 1969, Jagossians who were visiting Mauritius for um for you know often they would go to Mauritius for medical medical uh, uh, medical support and stuff. They were found that they were no longer allowed to board the steamer home. They were told their contracts to work on Diego Garcia had expired and this left them homeless and jobless and without any means of, su- of support. It also prevented word from reaching the rest of the Diego Garcia population of the impending sort of removal. Um, so they later, like in 1971, the remaining Chagossians were told that they would be forcibly removed. Um, and the memorandum which states that I told the inhabitants that we intend to close the island in July. A few of them asked whether they could receive some compensation for leaving, and this is in quote in, in, in brackets, in, in quotation marks, their own country. I kicked this into touch by saying that our intention was to cause as little disruption to their lives as possible. I, I love this because it's as little disruption to their lives as possible. Can you imagine writing this sentence where it's as little disruption to your life as possible i am forcibly removing you from your home like it's just it's just it's impossible to quite fully uh, grasp 
So by October 1970, 1971, the Jagostins and Diga Garcia had all been removed to uh, have been removed to the Peros Banos and Salomon plantations on, on this was the other islands of, of the Chagos archipelago on the ships charged from Mauritius and the Seychelles. And in no November 1972, the plantation on the Salomon Atoll was evacuated, the same as the Diego Garcia, with the population allowed to choose to be either taken to the Seychelles or Mauritius. Um, and on in, in 1973, the plantation on Paris Banatol was closed, and the last three islanders were sent to Seychelles or Mauritius. Um, there is a story which is kind of there's this story which I found in the course of research that one of the ways that they sort of convinced the the Chigasian people that they had to leave Diego Garcia was the so um, the story which goes um, the governor of the Seychelles, Sir Bruce Great Batch ordered all the dogs on Diego Garcia to be killed. More than 1,000 pets were gassed with exhaust fumes. They put the dogs in a furnace where the people worked. Um, this is Lisette Taletto, a, a, a former um, a, a person from the Jagosian community. And when their dogs were taken away in front of them, our children screamed and cried. Sir Bruce had been given responsibility for what the US called cleansing and sanitizing the islands. And the killings of the pets were taken by the islanders as a warning. So, and, and if you read any reports of this or any look at the, listen to the testimony, I mean, it beggars belief of these people sort of being removed from this island and placed in these ships, and in some cases just dumped on docks in Mauritius or seashells, and not knowing what what was to come of them, you know, what was the, what was the, going to happen to them in the future, and and in in especially Mauritius these. The, the the population have experienced you know major discrimination and are um, you know they've had the worst uh, health outcomes have the worst housing and all of these issues and um, so since the early two thousands there's been a kind of concerted effort by uh, by the by by the Jagosian community to get um, to, to go the legal route and get uh, get returned to their home. So in in 2000, the British High Court granted the islanders the right to, to return the right to return to the archipelago. A lot of them have moved to the UK because they were able to get uh, the, the, the original islanders were able to get British citizenship. So that's why you have this big community in Crawley and I think also in, in Manchester in the UK. And um, when you when you read through the sort of legal history of um, them using this legal route, there's this trend of them coming to a court, the court saying, you know, what was happened to them was clearly in breach of international human rights law and, and you know, this removal of people from their from their homeland and the a ruling saying that you have to return this to the the place to the to the Chagossian people and then it just been ignored by the by the by the British government. I'm going to read this other story to you as well. So according to leaked diplomatic cables obtained by WikiLeaks and released in 2010, in a calculated move in 2009 to prevent resettlement of the British Indian overseas territory by native Chagossians, the UK proposed that the BIOT become a, quote, marine reserve with the aim of preventing the former inhabitants from returning to their lands. The summary of the cable is as follows. HMG would like to establish a marine park of reserve providing comprehensive environmental protection into the reefs and waters of the BIOT. And uh, he agreed that the UK and US should carefully negotiate the details of the Marine Reserve to assure the US 
ensure that U.S. interests were safeguarded and the strategic value of BIOT was upheld. He said that the BIOT's former inhabitants would find it difficult, if not possible, to pursue their claim for resettlement on the islands if the entire Chagas archipelago were a marine reserve. So they set up this feasibility study to look into whether it would be feasible for these the, the Chagasian people to return. And remarkably, the, the the findings of their own report said that, that it wouldn't be feasible, and um, said nothing of the you know that there's a major U.S. military base on the island like that's feasible, but not not the Chagasian people themselves to return. And um, in in 2019, a pretty major uh, uh, the 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 Chagasian people brought their case to the International Court for. International Court of Justice in The Hague, and um, to, to to discuss whether case regarding whether Britain violated Mauritian sovereignty when it took possession of the islands for its own purposes. And in, in 2019, the ICJ ruled that the United Kingdom had infringed on the right of self-determination of the Chagos Islanders and was obliged to cede its control of the islands. And equally, in 2019, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a resolution. Uh, the welcoming this ICJ advisory opinion on the legal consequences of separating the Chagos archipelago from Mauritius in 1965 and demanding that the United Kingdom unconditionally withdraw its colonial administration from the area within six months. And um, this agreement has just completely been ignored by by the British British government since then. So they have the situation where you know these international courts have ruled in favour of the return of the. Um, of the return of the Chagossi people to their islands, but uh, the British government is just ignoring it. And what is made worse is that the, for generations after the who, who were born outside of the islands, um, the, the, those who were born in the UK, um, they have had the situation where they have not been able to get British citizenship because it was only granted to those who were born on the on the islands. So. As we were going to speak further with Jimmy Ferrara, a lot of them weren't able to get British passports, even though they've been spent their whole lives in the UK. So I hope this has kind of given a bit of a background into this case. I'm far from an expert into, I think, explaining this whole situation. Like it could go on for, uh, uh, you know, we could go on for hours just examining like what's happened regarding the courts. But I think it's important to have just a basic background of the, you know, obvious injustice and horrific treatment that these people have faced um in at the hands of the of the, of the uk government and um this um dr philippe sands who i think maybe some people might be aware of is kind of international well-known uh, human rights lawyer um has been quoted as saying it's, um british britain is on the edge of finding itself as a prior state we have a situation where chagossians and the border deported population want to go back and have a right to go back and the uk is preventing them from going back question is that a crime against humanity my response is that arguably it is with all that being said now let's move on to our, our first interview we're going to talk to sabrina jean about uh why she helped set up the chagos islands football team in the uk what it means to her to see them represent uh, representing their people and you know what what is what is the can you continue to fight for justice for the chagos people it's a really interesting chat we talk about what you know football can mean as a form of representing your country. I'm reminded of one of the first interviews we did on this podcast with Paul Watson, where he talked about, you know, seeing Tibet, the people who've been uh, 
being able to, the football team being able to represent who they are, where they've come from, what what they believe, and what that can mean, you know, beyond just playing a football match. So it's a really interesting chat, and we're gonna this will kind of lead us into our discussion afterwards with the the coach Jimmy Ferrer. Can you maybe to begin with, like briefly introduce yourself and also the the UK Chagos Refugees Group? Yeah, hi, I'm Sabrina. I'm the chairperson of the Chagos Refugees Group UK and also the chairperson of the Chagos Football Association in mm-hmm. the UK. Yeah. And when did you when did you move to the UK or when what is the what is your kind of family story? I moved in the UK in 2006. Uh I'm married, uh, three children. How like what was how was your family personally uh, affected by the the eviction of the Ch- the Chagossians? Okay, uh, my dad is a native from Peros Banos, uh, who has been deported to his own country. Uh, they sent them to Mauritius, and then uh, after a long time, uh, when I settled here in the UK in two thousand and six, uh, my dad uh, came and settled here also with me in the UK. But uh, like you know, the history of the Chagos, uh, I think, uh, where the UK government uh, take the island to put the largest military base. Mm-hmm. So still now we are still fighting for the right of return. And also we are fighting also about uh, immigration issue for many Chagosians. Yeah, and it sounds like an incredible um, inspiration and it's important struggle but but going back maybe a bit to the story from your dad so um he was living on one of the Chagos archipelago's islands and did he know that the us and britain were, were planning this or how was how did this come about so uh, my dad uh, family was in mauritius when it's happened uh okay because uh, my grandmother were here to seek uh, medical assistance. When they would like to return back to the Chagos Island, a company called Rogers said they are not allowed to return back because the island has been given to the UK government. So for Mauritius have their independence. So mm-hmm. those Chagosians who were in Mauritius, they have not been able to return back on the island leaving all their belongers on the island. So so your father, you know, just uh, was never able to sort of see his home. He, he was in Mauritius and they were just told then that he could never go back? Yes, he could never go back. But my father got the chance in 2006 when the Chagos refugees group leading by Mr. Bunkul in Mauritius did the first visit to the island. So uh, 100 Chagosian got the chance to visit the island in 2006. Mm-hmm. Did, did he describe to you um, how life on the Chagos Islands was like? Learning, uh, learning about life in the Chagos. As a second generation born from the Chagosian father, I got myself the chance to visit the island in 2011. Okay. So learning about the Chagos Island with the native came from the Chagos Island, especially with Mr. Bankul and others, because I was the youth uh, group uh, in Mauritius called Group Zanfrancilois, where I was the chair. Also, we learned a lot about, 
uh, about the history, about our culture, but many Chagossians said uh, Chagos Island was a paradise island. They got everything they want on the island. They share everything and life was very easy. So uh, returning back at when they had been deported in Mauritius, life was very tough for them. Even still now, many Chagossians are living in poverty. Even here in the UK also, we got lots of problems like housing issue, immigration issue, but it's painful, but uh, some of us can deal, some of us can't. Especially, I would like to talk a little bit about the immigration issue. Some of the second generation, they don't have British passport, but uh, the third generation also. I think you heard about the nationality and border bill recently, about how UK government are dealing about it. So Chagosian, they refused to give some of us citizenship. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what happens to those who, I mean, who are currently living in the UK, but they're not allowed to get British citizenship? Like what options so, are left open to uh, them? I'm, like me as a second generation, uh, coming here in the UK, I need to apply. Uh, I got British passport, but my children need to apply for a settlement visa for two years in Mauritius. When they got the settlement visa, they came here. So after the two years finished, I need to apply indefinite stay for them. After the indefinite, I, we, we did the citizenship where they are allowed to British passport, but it's a lot of money. So we are not granted British citizen like uh, we need to have it. We need to spend a lot of money about, we spend about 8,000 pounds or more to have everything to settle in Mauritius. But some Chagossian who can't afford it, uh, their kids came here sometime on a six month visa, but they can't apply for a two years visa or citizenship because it's a lot of money. So. We are asking to the UK government to do a fair thing for Chagossian because for us, we are British. We have been British, but they don't want to do something for the Chagossian community. We're still fighting for our right of return, but we're still fighting also for the UK government to put something about immigration issue for all Chagossian generation, including the spouse. Mm -hmm. Which of course seems like an incredible precarious situation to be in, right? You're not allowed to return to the home country of your grandfathers. And at the same time, you're not allowed to permanently even stay at the place that's now your new home. Yes. We are not allowed to do it, but it's a shame. But when you see uh, many uh, of other people working on the island, but why not us Chagossian? Well, especially when you see the Falkland Island, they are living on their island. But why Chagossian can't? This has been always my question. Why we are not allowed to live on our island? 
Did you ever get the chance to ask this question to a British politician? I always ask this question uh, when I, on Twitter, every, every uh, interview I, I did, but they always said they can't turn the clock back. Mm -hmm. This is their answer. They can't turn the clock back. But what they could do is theoretically give you back the rights to return to the island now, right? Yes, uh, another council has been in 2000 uh, said we are allowed to return and then they take it again from us. This is uh, why we are still fighting. We are still fighting for our right to return, but we are, we are still fighting also for immigration. UK government says they are champion uh, of human rights. Where is their human rights for Chagosian? Sabrina, when did you begin uh, campaigning in the UK? When was um, what is the kind of story with the campaigning in, in the UK? I started campaigning in the UK in 2012, mm -hmm. but have been campaigning also in Mauritius with the Chagos Refugees Group together, Mr. Bancool and others. So I've been fighting for a very long time, and I will never give up on the for the Chagosian community. Whatever mm -hmm. happened, I will still fighting for the Chagosian cause. Yeah. And how big, how big is the uh, Chagosian community in the UK now and also in Mauritius? In the UK, we are about uh, 3,000, 4,000. Yeah. In, in Mauritius, uh, I don't have uh, an answer an exact amount but i can find out and let you know okay no I uh, how how tight knit is the community i mean is it all kind of centered around a particular area i know it's a lot around the most of the chamberson are based in crawley and mm -hmm. we have about 400 uh, family in manchester and you have a uh, some place in the, in the UK, you have some in London, some in East Croydon, but uh, the place exact where you have most Chagosian are in Crawley and Manchester. And what are kind of events that the community comes together around? I mean, uh, we've heard about the, the, the story from the coach about the football as kind of an event where people come together, celebrate, um, also their Chagossian nationhood, but are there also other types of community organizations for what happens within the community? Yes, uh, you have you have a different group, uh, different Chagossian group here in Crowley also, but on the 3rd of November, we celebrate Chagos Day, where you have okay. all the group, all the members together, so we celebrate it. Uh, we have the first thing we pay tribute to all Chagosian native uh, or second generation, generation who has been passed away. And also we have a mass celebration. And after we have all the food, the culture of Chagosian on that day. So we have the food, the Sega, everything about Chagosian issue where you have every Chagosian who participate. Yeah, what, what is the significance of the date of the 3rd of November, is it? The 3rd yeah. of, of November is the Chagos Day, mm -hmm. where uh, in Mauritius we celebrate it also. 
I will send you everything about it because it's a long description about Chagos Day, so you will understand why we celebrate it. It no. sounds like a lovely That's piece. Great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I listened to, um, I think, a, a documentary with the British comedian. I can't remember his exact name, but I think he joined you on one of these Chagos days and he was, you know, mentioning about all the spices and the curries and everything. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> Very <laughs> spicy food, apparently. Yeah, it's all based from coconut, coconut yeah. milk. Mm hmm. And, and going on to the, the football, where does the idea for the uh, setting up of a Chagos football team come from? And what was the kind of um, the goal behind it? So the football team, uh, I met a filmmaker in uh, 2012, a filmmaker in Belgium called Olivier Magis. Mm -hmm. uh, so he came uh to the uk to talk about he would like to do a film about myself on me and then uh, we have been talking uh, a lot about the film and also he said what about a football team yeah. so uh, so this is this is the kind of issue the football has been uh, set up so he, he told me uh what do you think about uh, football can be a Chagossian course also where you have lots of people, you can do your campaign and everything. I think I said, it can be a good idea. Let, let me think about it. So, and then uh, he contacts someone from the CONIFA where we have yeah. the CONIFA World Cup and he has been talking about the Chagos so on that day we have a match football match where we need to go so i didn't have any players so we picked everyone yeah we picked every boys and then we we start our first competition uh together silen mm -hmm. so after silen uh i've been talking uh, with others and said why not create a football a chagos football group and they said it's a good idea maybe so we started the football team the football team started in february 2013 mm -hmm. we have been we have been selected uh for the conifa world cup in 2016 in abkhazia yeah. so we yeah. were only 16 players uh for the chagas island where you have 16 uh countries who have been participating on the tournament, which was a good experience for us. So uh, since that day, the campaign about Chagos is start with football also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I watched it that, um, I think it might be the same documentary, maybe Another Paradise, right? That's yes, with the, yes, yes. And that covers your the, the Chagos football team at, at that World Cup. And I remember yes. there's a scene where, you know, the Chagos team is coming out to play the opening match and you're there and it's clear um like just the sort of um pride and sort of emotional involved can you speak a bit about kind of uh, your feelings at that time to see your your country represented on that stage it was a good uh, thing but also very emotional moment uh, especially when you think about how the chagosian native who has been talking about the country uh 
how they will feel when they saw the second, third generation represent the Chagos Island on a big competition. It was so emotional for me because uh, we have been working hard to take this team to Abkhazia. Even we didn't have a, a lot of players because lack of money, but especially myself, I was so proud to participate in the CONIFA World Cup for the first time in a big competition. So since that day, many people talk about the Chagos Island and the Chagos football team, which yeah. are very proud about it. Yeah, I mean, that's also how we got to know about the whole story. Um, but going back to the second and third generation players you were talking about, do you think uh, playing football for Chagos Islands um, was also important for them, as in that it raised more awareness of maybe the heritage or the whole story, um, and yes. then maybe also brought them into the community a bit more? Yes, uh, it's a lot of awareness, especially uh, in the Chagos football team. I have some boys who don't have any uh, immigration issue. They are facing, uh, I got one player who has been faced a deportation uh because he don't have any paperwork but uh with football uh many people have been uh, learning about how the uk government has done with the chagosian community mm -hmm. because even if even some of the boys who had never talked about uh how they're feeling so when they have been playing football they start talking about their culture about the family, about where they came from. This is something I'm very happy because lots of the youth now start campaigning about the Chagosian cause. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the scenes that I particularly enjoy, I think, from that from that film um, during the World Cup, I think it was like the day after one of the games and I think the players are tired and they're in their beds and they don't want to go out and you you, you burst through the door and start <laughs> shouting at them to kind of get out, you know, this is, uh, you've got to get out and get training, get over yourselves. Um, how have you kind of, I don't know, like what is your, what do you feel like your responsibility is or your position is now in the in the Chagos community and also related to the to the football team? So, uh, my position in the Chagos community will be always, if I can, uh, helping each other. Sometimes it's hard, but if you have the courage, you have the capacity, you have the power of doing things, I will do it for my community. Even uh, we have a lot of pressure sometimes, but we will never give up. Mm -hmm. I will do everything I can, especially for my boys, for the football team. I will do whatever I can to bring them uh, more and more and more about the football, about everything. Because my, my point of view, I would like to see the Chagos football team to go far from where we started. I would like it to be a big thing, even one day I will not be with them, I don't know. But uh, having Jimmy uh, working with us on the Chagos football team, it's a big, big, big uh, thing for me, especially for me, because 
I can see how the boy has been uh, involved, how, how the boy has been working hard and hard. But my point of view is one get to see the, the boys uh, from the Chandler Island, maybe in a big uh, uh, club playing uh, for, 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 for their parents. Uh, I will be proud to see one Chandler uh playing for Manchester or Liverpool or whatever. Yeah. This is my dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, re- regarding football in general, um, and maybe also tying into this, do you know whether uh, football was a big thing before the eviction happened in the late 1960s and early 1970s? Oh, you never, I, 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 I don't know, but uh, when I started uh, the Chagas football team in 2013, I was yeah. so happy, especially as a woman, to do it. Uh, even I'm the only one uh, with them as a woman. I'm proud, and I'm very, very proud about my boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what is the? I mean, has the re- sort of uh, recognition of the team among the Chagossian community kind of grown since 2016? Like, do people are very people kind of proud of the team and come out to watch the matches and that kind of thing? Yes, they have yeah. been uh, since we have uh, Jimmy and uh, the others, uh, even. Uh, the first manager also still with us, Sir John Louis and uh, Gino Augusta, who mm-hmm. help also. But uh, we can see how the boy has been improved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then with the struggle of the team and zooming zooming out maybe a bit, so you wish a bright future for, for all the boys. How does the future for the Chagossian community look like? Like, do you have concrete next steps, what you want to try? It seems like you've taken the case to many courts internationally. What is the next big thing to come? Where are you working towards? The next thing is uh, we are working uh, hard on, especially right now, about the, the Chagas Refugees Group is still working about the right of return. And mm-hmm. also the big things we are working on is the immigration issue, especially uh, after this week when the bill has been in House of Commons, uh, where some of two, 245 MPs uh, say yes for Chagosian to have uh, the citizenship, and 309 MPs said no, we, they don't want us to have British citizenship. So we are working on this issue uh, to see what we will do for the next step. Mm-hmm. So it's yes. a big thing, but we are focused on it. Uh, not only the Chagas Refugees Group, you got uh, two more groups also who has been uh, working on it, but to cross fingers, maybe it can be a good thing. Maybe, maybe they will say, no, they don't want to give uh, Chagosian anything but we will still fighting for our rights what are what are the when they say that they don't want to give chagossian citizenship i mean what is the rationale or like what is the i mean how do they possibly defend that position when this is when you were ripped from your your homeland yes but uh this is my question this is this is why uh, i always ask why they don't want to give us they need to give us a fair question about why they don't want you take my country 
you deported my family to Mauritius. We have been fighting, so we got the British uh, passport. We, the second generation who has been as, at school, we came to the UK, we settled here, we got children, but why our children can't get British citizen? Why? If you gave me, you need to give my, my children also. Why you still divided family? You have a how you you have a wife here in the UK, a husband is still in Mauritius, wife in the UK maybe with two kids, a husband in the in Mauritius with two kids. Why you are divided us? Let us bring our family together. This is our option to the British government. Give the Chagosian what they want. We are allowed to have it. You can't divide us again and again. Why? Because mm. when we have been on the Chagos Island, we have been as one family. When you have, we have been deported to Mauritius, we have been as one family. But why here in the UK, you can't allow us to be one family together? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sabrina, when when um, we've seen, you know, in, in the few recent years, you know, um, international courts or United Nations rules in favor of the Chagossians and then the British government kind of decides to just, you know, unilaterally ignore those rulings. Do those when, when those rulings happen, do they kind of give you hope or give you that, you know, that it is possible that you will one day be able to return or do you just get um like more angry and more frustrated that the british government no matter what happens they ignore it we have been both hope upset angry but still going forward to fight with them we will still fighting we will never stop like we always said we will never give up we will see how far we can go how far they can go but our hope we will have it back one day I don't know when, I don't know what time, what year, but my hope we will have it. But we don't know exactly when. But in the meantime, we are asking the UK government to give us the immigration issue, to give us the British citizen, to bring all our family together. This is our, this is our most priority give us the chance to bring all our family together stop dividers stop dividers mm-hmm. yeah that sounds like an incredibly important cause and uh for us but also for, for our listeners how do you think people can be the best allies in this struggle how can people support your your, your course so we are online at, uh, we have we have a website who is the chagos refugees group.com we are on twitter crg uk crg mauritius you have uh, the other groups also uh, where you tap chagos you will find everything you have the uk support also who support all the chagosian group so I will I will ask people to support our cause because it's an important cause. Many people don't know about the Chagos struggle. When you talk about Chagos, sometimes people say never heard about it. 
So the Chagos, if the Chagosian have been deported from their own country to the UK government, put the largest military base on the island. Yeah. What is the initial response that people give to you who are um, from Britain and haven't heard about this story before? When you tell them about the, the fate and, and, and the story? Many people were very upset when we talk about it, uh, especially even uh, British people. They said they were very upset and they are very ashamed about the British government. Yeah. Yeah, how how could you not be? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How could you not? How <laughs> could you not be? All right, um, Sabrina. I don't have. Do you have anything further you would like to ask, Sabrina Leon? Um, no, I just think it's incredibly important and incredible yeah. what you do and how yeah. much heart you put <laughs> in this. And I wish there could be more for us to do about these issues because um, I feel it's a great injustice. Uh, the things that you and your family. Um, have experienced and I just wish that yeah we could work together towards a solution which is why I think it's incredibly important that you said all your contact details and how people mm, can support yeah. your course. Thank you. Sabrina yeah Sabrina I just where do, where does your kind of strength or you know commitment to keep going come from I mean does it just come from you know from the from within your community or what is it so I've been leading with Mr. Bancool in Mauritius. Uh, when I was in the youth group, uh, all the natives uh, speak about their struggle, about their culture, about everything. Especially myself, I always ask questions because I would like to know a little bit more. So we ask questions about, we take notes, and one day I said uh, I would like to fight for the Chagosian. So it was me, another guy called uh, Gianni Augusta. Uh, mm -hmm. We have been together in the Chagos uh, youth. So uh, when we left Mauritius, uh, we came here in the UK. So we start the Chagos Refugees Group UK, where we said we need to work for the right of our community especially for the right of my dad because my dad is a native so i would like to fight for my family for my friends and for the community so this is something it's in me uh, i would work uh, till i can So that was a really enlightening and genuinely inspiring conversation with Sabrina. We're um, really appreciative of her uh, giving us the time to join us on the podcast. Uh, our following next interview is with the current manager of the Chagos Islands, Jimmy Farrar. Jimmy has a really interesting story of how a white British guy who had no connection to the islands came to manage the site. We spoke about the unique parts of managing the island, island team, the progress that has been made, and the responsibility of representing them on the pitch.
yourself. Do you want to give a bit of a background about you, like who you are, where you've been coaching, and maybe how you ended up in this position? Yeah, so I, I actually started, this is my first sort of international job, so to speak. I started out managing sort of step five football in England, step five, step six. I played county football, which is that sort of same level. Um, played county football on and off. I got to about 25. I think I'm probably a little bit too competitive. My, I know quite a few people obviously know that through football when I played. I, it ends up costing me a fortune in yellow cards, red cards. Do <laughs> I sort of? I have to do it to win. Like I know some people might take that the wrong way, but not in a bad way. But I do, I do everything I can to sort of win a game of football. Like if there's any stone left unturned, and I look back on it afterwards as a manager, it sort of it will sit with me and sort of resonate with me for a few days. And it, yeah, it it does it does bug me. We recently played Kashmir and. I went up there with a real scratch team, went up there with a lot of 16, 17-year-olds and we got, they were a good team, mad boys playing like sort of conference South football, like yeah. higher levels and non-league and they sort of, it was a bit of a footballing lesson but I looked back on it, I was still like evaluating it a week later, thinking to myself, like, <laughs> why, why have I done this? What, what's happened? And yeah, but that's just me as a person. I think just with football, I do, with the team I've got around me as well, they're 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 very self-critical of themselves as well. So we do try and do it as best as we can. And that sort of that's always gone for me as a manager. Um I've managed in Sussex, managed Allfold, managed at Oakwood, um, won a league, finished third in the league. So reasonably successful at non-league. I know that sounds a little bit arrogant, I don't mean it to be. Um but yeah, and then I I was actually gonna we had my my partner had my little girl and we were both talking and I was actually going to take a bit of time out of football I just thought I don't want to lose the best years of the kids life and I think I was out of football about two to four weeks and Sabrina the chair lady and me got talking on we got talking on Twitter next thing I know I was going to meet her in the committee and I got brought in as a coach and then very shortly after took over as manager and that was probably more that wasn't my doing that wasn't my intentions at the start it was very much I wanted just to come in and professionalise things but one thing led to another. I may well have upset a few people along the way, um, but it's all to make the team better and give the boys more opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's such a productive use of Twitter, <laughs> finding a job just to <laughs> chatting with someone. How did it come about? What were you chatting about? Um, I can't. You know, I genuinely can't remember how it came around. Um, I think I followed Sabrina, or she followed me. So I knew the Shagos Island primarily were, uh, they were based in Crawley. Obviously, the story which we can go through in, in a minute, um, they come over and a lot, Gatwick's an airport right next to Crawley. And I think a lot of the guys come over with their families, got to Gatwick, and Crawley was like well, the nearest town. And mm-hmm. a lot of them, a lot of the guys set, settled in Crawley. Some have moved further afield to like Manchester. There's a big community, um, London, all over the UK now. But yeah, the biggest population of Shagossians and second and third generation is in Crawley outside of Mauritius. And what what did you know of the sort of Jagossian uh, story before you took the job? Were you um, aware of it or was it kind of come as a surprise? Uh, I, I knew I knew very, very little. I knew nothing of the political story. Um, when I look at what I do now in terms of working with Sabrina on the political side, um, I knew nothing of the political side of it. I knew Clyde, who's my captain, 
he's only Clyde's 23. He, um, Clyde played for me at Allfold and played for me at Oakwood. And he's one, he's one player that I've always said should be playing like playing in the football league. I genuinely think he's good enough to be a professional. Um, I think Clyde's downfall is maybe he hasn't had that opportunity. Um, so I knew a new Obda team through Clyde. And yeah, like I say, got chatting with Sabrina. She asked me to come down and have a chat with her and the committee. I did. And then, yeah, well, we're now two years down the line through COVID and a lot's happened since then. Yeah. And what were the kind of, um, what was it, what was it like when you, because I think I <clears throat> listened to you on another podcast and you kind of mentioned that when you started with the Chigos students, like you went to the first training and there was just a, a few people there. Like, what have you done to kind of try and build it up the team? Uh, the first training session, yeah, there was a few people. There was a coach that used to coach before. There was a sort of a guy that helps out the team. He's still on the team now, like helps me out massively. Um, I think there was a handful of bibs, a couple of sort of like battered footballs. And I, anyone that works with me in football knows that I like to do everything properly from like having the bibs washed and cleaned before training to having full sets of ball, just what I think is basic management if yeah. you want to be successful. Um, and then, yeah, I just implemented a few things, got a few sponsors in and got a few sponsors in and, yeah, we just sort of started building up the equipment side of things and we've had a bit of a, like everyone's seen, we had, we had the kits designed, they took off like an absolute whirlwind. Um, and then, yeah, I worked with Rick from Hope and Glory, worked from Rick from Hope and Glory and, yeah, the kits have been really successful actually. Um and it sort of just spiralled from there. I've got, yeah. I think the backroom team I've got now in terms of my coach, my goalkeeping coach, my sort of like John, my head of performance, everything is very professional. Like I've got people around me that should be in full-time football and I'm very lucky to have them and they do it. We all do it on a voluntary basis. So yeah, it's, that's, I've surrounded myself, surrounded myself with people that help me out in terms of sponsorship and a lot of very professional people in their sort of area of expertise. So Andy, my coach, um, Simon, goalkeeping coach, John, who's head of performance, they're all very, very thorough in what they do. And they're like me, they're winners, and they will do everything they can to win. And what did you do to kind of attract these people to get, like, what's the attraction for, or the story for a lot of these people to come and work with the Chagos team? I think... The problems we, we've, not problems, that's probably the wrong, wrong word, but we've had people that have come in and I know within the community, a lot of people have said, oh, it's, it's English, white English blokes, right? and certain people haven't wanted to be involved. But that was primarily at the start. And now I think with the opportunities and the sort of things we've done since then, and we've won a tournament and we've won games and, something that Shagos has never done before. I think we've won a lot of the people or a lot of the community around. So it has changed. But in terms of getting the guys in, I think it was the story. Yeah. Obviously, I knew Andy, my head coach, I knew Andy really well. Ishmael, sort of my assistant manager, he knew a lot of the boys. Um, it was the story, really. Just people learn the story and they think they have a bit of an affinity with, like, they sort of sit to them and they think it's, they've been wronged and, yeah, people come on board and everyone's stayed with me since. We've lost one or two along the way, but I think you lose one or two along the way in most jobs, don't you? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, probably you do. So you talked about the story and how important do you think is the football team and also their performance and their publicity to raise awareness on the struggle that the Chagossians are fighting right now? Um, I think the political side of it and the football, it goes so hand in hand. I've had, I wouldn't, if I had a pound for everyone that I'd know, I'd probably be a millionaire, but the amount of people that have learned or read up or researched on the Shagos story off the back of the football team. Like, or even, been... the fo- even the football short, like I became aware of the story uh, in a much bigger picture just because I saw someone with the with the football sure. shirt. Yeah, and that's uh, that's the football shirt. I was I was on Talksport last year. Like I've had like people sort of messaging me that I haven't spoke to in years, and they're like, "Jimmy, what like what the bloody hell are you doing? Like, <laughs> where we've taken it and what we've done with it?" And we, I said to Sabrina at the start, I didn't want to do nothing from the political side in terms of I wanted to concentrate on the football and give the boys as much opportunity as we could and make them not just much better footballers, but try and make them better as people as well. And that's sort of like what my coaching staff do. Like we want to improve them as people and as footballers and hopefully they might help the community in the long term. That is that was our sort of primary aim. Um <laughs> it's yeah, it's and it's come a long way since then. Mm-hmm. And how like how big is the kind of player base that you have to choose from? Like how big is the community in Crawley of players that you kind of know or are able to? Um, put it this way: if I told you there's a population of around, there's various estimates. But if you said people that are eligible for to play for the Shagos Islands, whether they're second, third, fourth generations, the majority are third generation. We have got a few players whose parents are from Shagos. Um, <sighs> We, I think, there's a population around the world of anywhere between ten and fifteen thousand. Yeah. Um, I've got in Crawley, Manchester, in the UK alone. I've probably got a pool of players to pick from of about, I'd say forty, maybe fifty at a push. Um, in Mauritius, I've got players that play sort of professional out there. I've probably got a similar amount in Mauritius. But when you compare some of the teams we played against, we played sort of Barawa in the final of the World Unity Cup recently and that's a that's a region of Somalia that's sort of in the millions and in Kanifa when you look at teams like North Cyprus and Western Armenia and Western Sahara sort of you're talking play, like regions and countries that have got millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people and Shagos has got we've not even uh, yeah so when I say a hundred people that's sort of being very conservative because mm-hmm. we've got in Crawley We've got a handful of players to pick from, so we don't have we don't have the sort of privilege of picking the best from a big bunch. We have the privilege of working with a select group of players, and like I said, you've got to make them the best footballers you can. And when you look at the success that they've Shagos have had recently, and the sort of win percentage that has built up over the past two years, and I think it sort of speaks volumes. Not just me, but the players themselves, like. They've taken it on board and they've become better players. Yeah, and do you feel like do you when you when you're managing this team, do you feel kind of a sense of a bigger sense of responsibility than you would from coaching another team in that you kind of this this team is kind of bigger than just say like a like a local non league team in that it's kind of it's representative of, of a community. And do you kind of feel that when you when it comes to the games, for instance, when people coming out and that kind of thing? Yeah, I I think there's a sense of responsibility in terms of 
the political story and the political side of things. And obviously, I'm representing the team myself. I'm representing the team, managing the team. So that's why I say, like, when I go back to making the players better people as well as players, it's because you're representing the nation, you're representing an island and a, like a larger community that if we were to be sort of like rag-ass rovers and turn up and fight and just get into absolute disarray in matches, it, it would speak volumes and people would look at the wider community in that sort of context. And that's one thing I've sort of tried to improve massively and the discipline side of things. And so yeah, there is there's a massive sense of responsibility, I'd say. Like when you look at the coverage the story gets and the people that people that have contacted me and the people that I've met through the story, it's sort of it goes to tell you it's not although people may say the standard wise might be non league football, that may yeah, that may be true, but in terms of the story and the how hundreds of people and the amount of countries that the shirt gets worn around the world, it's sort of it's bigger than it's bigger than just similar to a non-league team. Do you think the story that you talk about has also shifted your perspective on maybe politics in England or in Britain itself? Because surely they're intertwined in the struggle that the Shigotsians are fighting for right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. What, what effect did this have on you or maybe on your friends? Um, do you know what? I'll be brutally honest. Like I said to you, with Sabrina, when I met Sabrina and I said I didn't want to be involved in the political side and me and Sabrina talk every day. Like I talk to Sabrina as much as I talk to my girlfriend. And, <laughs> like we're so me and Sabrina are really close, and like uh, there's not many people I trust with everything. But Sabrina, I like 100% trust. Like she's a very, very, very good friend now. Um, treat her like family. So yeah, it's the political story. When you read about it, and when you look at it in depth, in terms of within sort of the past few decades what's happened to the people and the story that um like that unfurled from the british government you can't help but think it's absolutely it's like criminal it's criminal but i'll just give you a few snippets of it i don't know how much you guys have read up on it but like when they were forced to leave the islands it wasn't optional like the british navy and the american navy like they gassed the dogs they gassed all the mm. pets like They put them into a warehouse and killed people's pets. Like, can you imagine Boris Johnson went and rounded up everyone's pet cat and dog in like North London and put them in a warehouse and gassed them? It would like cause uproar. It wouldn't. It, it would never happen. So, for it to happen to them and to sort of be brushed under the carpet, because I think it does. It gets the story. Although we've raised as much as we can, the story still isn't very, very well known. Like, yeah. there's big supporters behind it, but when you look at not that I, I wouldn't want to compare them at all, but when you look at the West Indies, um, the Windrush scandal, like it's of a similar nature in terms of scandal and how scandalous it is. And to be fair, that's had a, that has had a lot of a lot of coverage, which rightly it deserves. But that's what I want for Shagos and for the Shagos people. Because not many people discuss it. People say they want to return home, but there's one island amongst a group of over 50 and the guys would happily go back to Diego Garcia and live on the island there and live on the other two islands that were inhabited at the time. They would go back there and live there and they would live alongside the American air base. Like, people have flown, flown in from like the Philippines, Malaysia, to work on the island. And I just, for me, unless there's something more to the story, which I'm, <laughs> I'm no doubt there is, um, why, the guy, why are they not allowed to live on Diego Garcia or Solomon Islands? 
uh, or Peros Banos. Why can't they live there and live as lo- live alongside the airbase? There's, there's more to the story, a lot more to the story. And I don't think in our lifetimes we'll ever find out that side of the story. I just hope in our lifetimes they get to return home. Mm-hmm. Speaking about um, one of the other difficulties with the that the Chigos people face, I was reading about before the uh, 2019 Kunifa World Cup got cancelled that you had some players who basically you wanted to be able to pick but because of passport issues that you can't you couldn't take them because they wouldn't be able to get back into the UK can you explain a little bit about that situation oh, this is is that this is another again it goes back to the political side so yeah I am well sort of intertwined with it now yeah. but the British government stance is if you were born in if you were born on one of the Shagos Islands and you were forcibly evicted you and what we what we know as the second generation. So if you're born on the island, you and your children are eligible for a British passport. But so Sabrina, who is the chair lady, her father's from the her father's from Peros Banos, which is one of the Shagos Islands. So Sabrina's a second generation. So Sabrina's eligible for British passport. Her children weren't. She's come over here and she fought and worked and Fair play to her. She worked her absolute butt off to get here, and she's provided, and she's a she's a British citizen. But for her children to not be British citizens because also, they come from a British overseas territory, it's just like it just beggars belief. Like, but going back to the also, what's the solution? Yeah, I mean, they can't go back. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like I, people, I I spoke to people that. You, whether like, I don't look at it this way, but if you look at it, people that are left wing, people that are right wing. But I spoke to people that people would say, yeah, they're very right wing, and they're saying, well, they got put on, they got put on Mauritius, and you've just, you've literally got to pull it as simple as if I took you out of your home tomorrow, killed your pets, and put you on a boat to the Isle of Wight, and said you've got to live there, but you're not allowed to come and live in the country that owns the Isle of Wight and have all the opportunities that comes with that. It's sort of People are like, oh yeah, but that wouldn't happen. People's attitude is that wouldn't happen to me, and that's what that's what the issue is. Like people think because it's over in Mauritius, oh, it's it's not our problem, but it very much is our problem. Like there's a support package. The British government a few years back, sort of like it was in the in, in ICJ, and they were found to be sort of like illegal holders of the country. So it's. They were told to hand it back to Mauritius. And I think if you look on the United Nations map, it actually comes under Mauritius. It doesn't yeah. come under British Overseas Territory. So it's absolutely it is absolute bonkers. Like I, I still can't get my head around it. Like and when you meet the Shagossian community, like they've made me one of their own. Like I get treated like as if I'm from Shagos and I treat them all as family. And I'll tell you what, you won't meet many more hospital people, but they do everything they can for me and I'll do everything I can for them. Um, but I just hope in our lifetime, whether that be 10 years, 20 years, next year, they can go back to Shagos and go and live happily. Because when you see the islands, I've seen a lot of videos, a lot of pictures of people that have actually gone back and visited. It's it's beautiful. Like, I think when I look out the window now and see it's sort of peeing down with rain, I think I know where I'd rather be. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you know how the players cope with this, with this injustice? Because surely the story has to affect them. Um, um, I think the players, there's certain players that are a lot more. We've got a fair few players that have grown up or come to Britain, come to England from a very early age, so they don't know that way of life. It is a lot more sort of 
the elder side of the community that would fight to get back. So, but when you look at my players that grew up in Mauritius and that were born in Mauritius, which is of a similar climate, possibly a similar way of life, they love going back to Mauritius. Like they love when they're there, they're sort of the happiest I think I see them. And then they come back here where it's a total different climate, but they come back here for more opportunity. So, yeah, when you look at sort of that side of it, I think should they get the chance to go back, then I'd probably be able to sort of divulge a bit more on that. But, yeah, I think I I know that they're a lot happier in that climate. They're a lot happier when they're in Mauritius. I think they'd all be, I know Sabrina would be bloody over the moon and a lot happier in, in Shagot. So, like I say, going back to the American air base there, like I don't get why they can't live, if even if they didn't live on Diego Garcia, why they can't live on the other two islands. Mm-hmm. Going back to the to the pitch, I know the 2019 Canifa World Cup was cancelled due to COVID. Is there plans for the next edition or what's what's the story there? Uh, I'm probably going to be a bit, I don't know, I've said this on a podcast or to anyone yet, I'm probably going to be a bit sort of um, go out there and go out on a limb a little bit. But I think Canifa's in a bit of disarray, like massive disarray. Like it's quite obvious from on Twitter, online, they've sort of, they cancelled the World Cup and we, they they postponed it originally, and then I think the European members, which were a little bit, you'd probably say a little bit better off and a little bit well, bit bit better funded. There was European teams that hadn't qualified for the 2019 World Cup, and we qualified through merit and nothing else. We played enough games, we got enough qualifying points, and I've seen messages, I've seen messages between people on the committee that says they didn't want Chagos there. So that again, sort of actually. Yeah. Justice doesn't just stop politically, it's, it goes into football as well. And I look at that and, yeah, it's it was cancelled, postponed, sorry, and it was cancelled. And then it was sort of without any consultation with any of the teams. I know that sort of factually. There was no consultation with any of the teams that qualified. There was a lot of uproar about it. And next thing I know, they was announcing a European Cup. And and Chagos can't play in, in the in the European nah, Cup. No, but we play we come under Canifa Africa, so okay. huh. there was a African Cup planned for this year, but with COVID, obviously that's yeah that's gone on the back burner. Mm-hmm. So what alternatives do you have then? Is it friendly uh, matches only, or? Well, we've joined World Unity, which is yeah. uh, another sort of similar sort of organisation to Canifa. With I'm hoping it will have better values and possibly better organisation and better people running it. Um, yeah, that's so. That's our other option. I have someone has spoke to me about joining sort of the national league system in England. Yeah. So, whether we start sort of the Shagos and similar sort of Jersey with Jersey Bulls, what they've done. So whether we go down that route. So yeah, there's there's options. <laughs> there's there's lots of options. And Sabrina's currently away, so me and her have got to have a catch up when she returns, and we've got to yeah, we've got to go from there. Yeah, but I mean, it could be maybe joining the league system could be quite exciting, right? For the Chagos Islands and get more coverage yeah. and that kind of thing. Regular games. Yeah, that would be in terms of regular game time because a lot of a lot of my boys now they in the last year or two they've really pushed on. Like a lot of my boys have gone from playing sort of park football and uh, not a great level, and they've gone on and they're playing county football, sort of in the lower leagues of Ryman. So the boy, I'm happy in terms of the progress and the development of a lot of the players, and they've really stepped up and. You know, coming to their own in the past year or two. Um, yeah, joining the National League system, game time. Yeah, it'd be great. Ideally, 
like politically, the guys get to go back to their country, they get to live happily, they get sort of recognised as their own country. We can join FIFA, a lot more financial help, um, a lot more assistance, a lot more opportunity. That's that would be my long term aim. But yeah. as we speak, yeah, we, that's not an option at the moment. Mm-hmm. Leon, did you want to jump in there? Or? No, no, I just think it's um, incredibly interesting. Um, the How much um, optimism is in the player base and maybe also in the broader community that this can be brought about within the foreseeable future? Um, uh, yeah. Depends who you speak to, really. I think that the fact that the sort of the European Court of Justice told the UK government to hand the islands back to Mauritius and they were sort of illegal occupiers. That speaks volumes, but I think the British government do what the British government did best at the time and do best now, and they sort of wash their hands of it and say, oh, we don't recognise that. So what do you do? What do you, it's, you can't really argue, can you? But I'm, I'm confident or I'm fairly optimistic that one day the islands will be returned. They get to go and live back on the islands happily. And then from there, hopefully, whether I'm involved or whether other people are involved, the football team sort of have a lot, lot more opportunity. When you look at when you look at various other overseas territories like the British Virgin Islands and so on, you can yeah, there's a lot more opportunity available. If people kind of get interested in the in the Chagos story, where's the best place to go or can you know to find that information or want to come to a match or something like that? So our, our Twitter is probably the best point of point of contact we've got a facebook page we've got an instagram that's recently been set up and there's a few plans in the pipeline to cohen we're going to be linking out of a youtube channel and doing some sort of weekly news and weekly insights and weekly challenges so yeah there's a lot that's been sort of prohibited by covid like recently but we're looking now things are starting to look like they're returning to normal touchwood we can we can get things sort of really pressing ahead and back to where we were because I think we qualified for the World Cup and there was so much optimism. Yeah. But the, there's really been any success around the football team. It's been sort of, they've been seen as whipping boys and they've had a lot of heavy results. And yeah, since we took over, we wanted to change that and turn it on its head. Um, and obviously we won the World Unity, the sort of UK series recently. And I think we was expected to finish like rock bottom in that and probably not score a goal. And to win that, the, the, the party that went on afterwards, I cannot tell. <laughs> Please tell us. Was it I, everyone? I cannot, yeah, I could not tell you how <laughs> how much optimism that brought around in the boys. It sort of, it was. It wasn't just the boys. It was like the management team as well. Like just the happiness and like I could see in people's faces how happy they were that like a lot and a lot of hard work had passed off and sort of come to fruition. Um, players, I think. The players never expected to win it and we won the first game that was a friendly and then we played in it was a four four team series and we played a semi-final we won that and then we played in the final and it went to penalties and I remember when the last penalty uh, my centre-back was quite Damien he was quite <laughs> he was quite happy and I wouldn't say arrogant but borderline arrogant about yeah I'll take the last one yeah I'll score it no problem he literally I don't think I've seen many people step up and take a penalty like it and that that started a party that went on until I think 24 hours later, and there's there's still videos circulating of people getting folded out of cat taxis and people folding the beds and yeah, it was quite a party. Who did who did you beat in the final? Who were the who were the losers? Uh, Barrowa, Barrowa, oh, which is a, 
I'm gonna. I think it's from their from the eastern region of Somalia. So okay. you've got. We've also got Somalia land that play in World Unity and Tunisia, and you've got Barua, and I think it represents a population of a, a million or a couple of million. Yeah. As a coach, how do you select the penalty shooters? Like, just as a coach. Yeah. 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 What is your approach? You know I know a lot of coaches do a lot of sort of prior research. Yeah. They sort of they do penalty competitions in training and stuff like that, but. I'm very much in a mindset when it comes to a game, you've got to judge it on who's played well, who's confident, who's sort of, who's taken a heavy tackle 10 minutes before and doesn't quite feel up to it. Yeah. The dynamic of a team and dynamics of decisions change like by the minute in a game of football. And on that final, I asked the boys, I said, who wants to take a penalty? Who's confident? Who's happy? And yeah, Damien, the centre-back, he stood up, took it and... <laughs> I don't think I don't think there's many strikers that have struck a ball as well as that. And yeah, then the whiskey was flowing an hour later. <laughs> so if if your best player kind of you you think okay beforehand he's definitely going to take a penalty, and then it comes to then and you're like he's like just kind of you can tell he's not into it. Would you be a coach who would like to tell him, no you take it or you, you kind of take yeah, it on? I, yeah, I would. I'm quite in terms of coaching and from a football point of view, I'm very much for the mindset that. You sort of you push the decisions towards the players. You make them make decisions rather than you making decisions for them. Um, I'm similar similar in my work life. I sort of I don't like to micromanage if that's sort of the terminology. Um, I want people to be confident in what they do because if you're not confident on a football pitch at work in general life, if you're not confident in what you do, it's sort of it's quite quite transparent in how it comes out. And on the football pitch, if you're playing with no confidence. It's it's going to be You'll be getting a number four when you're marked in the Suns Sun Green team on a Sunday. <laughs> it's clear that you feel kind of very, uh, promised to finish in a couple of questions, but um, it's clear you feel very kind of accepted or part of the Chagos team thing. And I just want to kind of know, was there a point where you felt you kind of had to prove your commitment to the team and also the community? Or how did, was it, how was the relationship at first? Was it kind of a little uneasy or how, how did that work? Yeah, it was like I said, we've upset people along the way. Yeah. Be, that's that's being honest. Um, there's guys that I've met since that were from, they're actually from the community that probably don't like the fact that it's a lot of elderly white men or older white guys that come in that are English and think. I know there was a lot of questions about what were what were our sort of what were what was my motive and what was the team's motive and what was my management team's motive behind wanting to take over and wanting to take charge of Shagos. But ours was primarily we're football people, we love football. I think we've sort of fell in love with the community a lot and we've done a lot for the community. Like last year we done a food bank and we sort of fed numerous families in the community, not just the Mauritian and Shagos and the English community. So I think that sort of broke down a few barriers. We've done everything we can. Like I said, we've not. There's no ulterior motive. I do it voluntary. I probably put a lot of my own money towards it, or brought things without even realising it's my own money. Never really had nothing back for it. I've had a lot of coverage. Um, long term, I'd like them to be able to play in like the sort of FIFA system, or to go a little bit further afield in terms of where we play and what we do, and the sort of sponsorship and the funding we have behind us. But it is very, it's one step at a time. Yeah. <laughs> one step at a time. Exactly, exactly. Leon, do you have any kind of final questions for Jimmy or anything? I was I was always wondering, was football 
big in the Chagos Islands before the eviction happened in the 1960s you know and what? 70s. I've asked, you're, the, you're, only the, you're the first person to ask me this, actually, as a question, but I've actually asked a question to some of the natives I've met about football, and I don't think there was much football. There wasn't a football pitch. Um, there wasn't really football. Like I said, at the time of when the community was evicted from the islands, I think it was about 1,500. It wasn't a lot of people at all. Um, it was a big fishing community. You could probably say they lived off-grid in terms of what they had available to them. It was in like it was in the late sixties, seventies. So, yeah, it was. I think it was a different. It would be different now. Don't get me wrong. If they went back to Chagos, yeah. I'd make sure there's a football stadium built. When I <laughs> so it definitely sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. It's um, in terms of the community of Mauritius, that are second and third generation. There is yeah, football's massive. Football in Mauritius is massive. It's sort of it's a way of life now. And I think if guys went back to Chagos it would be it would very much be the same yeah sounds awesome all right Jimmy thank you so much for your for your time no that's fine not problem. I'm glad like I said guys I apologize no, no that's fine apologies necessary it was worth the wait Podcast Network.